0: Continuing in this series, God is great, and today is the second of twelve passages as we take in this theme of the greatness of God uh, through our Bibles in the series. And our Bible last week, if you were here, it began pretty idyllic, didn't it? I mean, doesn't the uh, the Garden of Eden, or literally the Garden of Delight, doesn't that seem awesome? Like, when everything was good and there was unhindered fellowship with God, it seemed great. And it was idyllic and without problems and chaos. I mean, isn't that actually what, uh, when we picture an ideal uh, scene in our mind, it's usually because of the absence of something, right? Uh, the absence of, you know, uh, of a frantic schedule of, like, chauffeuring teenagers around. That sounds like an idyllic life for some, right? Uh, uh, the idyllic life of the absence of, of young children underfoot and and constantly in need. Or the absence of whatever. Maybe you've been in an idyllic situation. Maybe it's a, a, one of those dream vacations, hidden away in the woods or... You know, on the beach with the waves lapping and everything was going perfect until it wasn't. ever had a moment like that? Things were going great and then something happened that totally ruined it. A a storm blew in or you got violently sick or somebody did something and the next thing you know, uh, your ideal situation. You know, uh, this was a few years ago now. But uh, when I think of a scene like this, uh, this happened to me a a few years ago. Uh, You're all familiar with Cypress Bend Park. It's right in the middle of town. It's kind of the hidden gem of uh, parks in our city. And uh, you, you know the kind of layout, you come in and the, way down on the other end is the, is the beach where you can put in your boat and lots of people are there and the playground and the bathrooms and, and the pavilions and stuff are down there. But then there's like a whole like half mile or more of riverfront there with those towering cypress trees and it's, it's glorious and the fields are there. You know what I'm talking about? You been there? Well, I love to go down there uh, during the school year, during the day, during the week when nobody else is out there. I love to, to just go down there. I'll take my camp chair and my Bible and notes. And if I'm working through a passage of scripture or have something uh, that I want to pray about that I just need to get away. I don't take my phone and uh, you know, tell somebody where I'm going. And then I just go down there and, uh, and, and can meet with the Lord. And so I do that often. Now, I've given you some of my secrets, so don't uh, you know, start showing up trying to, to find me while I'm down there. But a couple of years ago, I was I was doing this, and it was great. It was one of those like beautiful afternoons, and I was there. Nobody else was around, and I found this place uh, and was just meeting with the Lord. And the next thing I know, my study is interrupted by three young ladies who decide that of the whole half mile or better of riverfront where I was seated was the best place for them to lay out their camp, to drop their cooler, to uh, 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 to have their speaker there blasting country music and to get in and play in the water right in front of me now I, I was kind of astonished like maybe you're astonished too it was like out of all the places and they decide right next to me is the place that they need to also get in the water what do you think i did in that moment do you think i yelled at them get out of here I was actually pretty speechless. I I just kind of looked up and looked down the the river bank. So I got a vault, I guess right here. So I just packed up my stuff, moved about 500 yards down and continued meeting with the Lord in that. But this idyllic situation, meeting with the Lord, was all of a sudden ruined. I wonder if our chapter today in Genesis 3 was, uh, you know, well, it was obviously much more catastrophic than That here, Adam and Eve, in the midst of the garden, everything is going great until it was not. Something happened that changed everything, not just for Adam and Eve there, but for all humanity uh, since then. The tragedy of it we'll see here in a minute in the grace of God through it all. How about we do this? Let's read the chapter in its entirety, and then we'll take it a section at a time as we go. Turn in your Bible, listen, and follow along as I read the story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word for God's people. Wow, it's a pretty weighty uh, passage of scripture, isn't it? And here's the bottom line for y'all. If you're taking notes there, if you want to write this in your Bible, I hope that you would so you remember it every time you come to it. But here's the bottom line of Genesis 3. Sin ruins everything. Sin ruins everything. And the verb tense there is deliberate. Ruined, yes. A past tense, yes. It ruined things for Adam and Eve, but it is also ruining present tense. It ruins and will continue until Christ returns. Until we reach glory where sin has no more power or presence in our life. And see, here's the thing. As a result of sin, all of God's good creation from Genesis 1 and 2 has been corrupted. We bear its effects in our bodies through the uh, through the physical ailment and the aging and the decay of our bodies, in the sin and the struggle that we uh, continue through. Creation itself suffers and groans, even as a result of this sin. Nothing in all of creation has been left untouched. COVID, nor the flu, nor any other contagion has affected anything like sin. For sin has ruined. Everything. And the account that we just read, Genesis 3, really tells us how that has come about. Why this is even the case. It tells us of why we live in the world in which we live. And if it's the filter in which we view the brokenness and chaos that exists in our life that has disrupted what God had made perfect. See, here's what the first 13 verses teach us. That Satan is persuasive. Satan is persuasive. There's an enemy behind it all. As we say, sin is, uh, has ruined everything. Behind sin is the power, is the enemy. And seemingly out of nowhere, as we come to chapter 3, this adversary enters the story. If you read Genesis 1 like we looked at last week? And then chapter 2, you're familiar. Then all of a sudden, this crafty creature, he is distinct unlike any other created being. He enters the story. He's a real serpent that's been supernaturally empowered. As much we don't know, there's much that uh, 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 the details that will be left to ask the Lord in heaven about the origins of some of these things. Uh, prophets in later years, uh, uh, really thousands of years after this has happened in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, uh, begin to fill in some of the details that happen here. We don't know why St. Jude is a serpent. We don't know uh, many other things. But what is very clear... From these uh, uh, first verses is just how persuasive Satan and, and thus sin really are. And we learn a lot about his tactics in this passage. We learn about it. See, here he's, He has like one play that he runs. Uh, He he has one thing with one end, and the end is destruction. The end is to devour God's people. And he has this uh, persuasive element throughout all of his tactics that lead us there. And he uses it on Adam and Eve, and he's been using it ever since. And you can probably identify even these tactics in your own life. So you note these down. We'll just kind of work our way through it here as we uh, go through the discourse of uh, of the enemy here and the woman's conversation. First tactic is to cast doubt. He just asks a simple question here. He says to the woman, "Did God actually say?" You can almost uh, hear the conniving nature in which he asks this question as he plants the seed of suspicion of God's authority, of God's word in the woman's mind. He asks and he he just kind of like is able to just put a finger in there just to crack it open a little bit to uh, breed this skepticism about what God has actually said. The remarkable thing is that Eve is able to reply in verse two with the she's able to quote God's word from Genesis two. She said, "Well, this is what God says." And so, but Satan he's just beginning by casting doubt the authority of God and the trustworthiness of the word of God. And then he just outright deceives her as he, as she answers with it. And then he says, lest you die in the serpent." Then in verse four, he just uh, he just makes uh, 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 he just twists reality. He says, "You won't surely die." But now that the seed of doubt has been planted, he can now enter in uh, deception. He claims that will hopefully now stick, even though she knows the truth. And he takes it a step further there because he not only that casts us down and he deceives her, but then uh, notice how he moves on. He defames the character and motives of God. He, it's almost as like, he says, you won't surely die, but God knows that you'll eat and your eyes will be open. See, here's, here's what he's doing. He's defaming God's character. Not, he's not good. He's actually mean. He's withholding something from you. He, he is, he's, he's, he's casting this suspicion about God's motives. No, he must, he must not actually love you. He must not have your best interests in mind. He just doesn't want you to be like him. See, here's the, the reality. When it comes to God's character, when he tells us no, it's always for our protection. I heard a pastor say once, when God says "Don't," he means "Don't hurt yourself." So as she tells them not to eat of this, there is good reason. But see, the enemy always wants to—he wants to defame God's um, character and His motives in our viewpoint. No, 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 God is God is out to get you. He's not good. He's not in control. Like, let's just be real clear about something. If we learn anything in Genesis one and two, who's in control, y'all? It. it, it if there's anything about God's character and how he acts and relates to his people is he good or is he mean he's very good he's unbelievably good he is actually great and So then what does he do? He works his way, he casts doubt. out, he outright deceives, he defames, and then he distorts. He twists God's word here. Even in the question, he, he dis, uh, distorts it in that initial thing, confusing about what God actually did say. And then also by exaggerating the pleasure of sin and disobedience, he knows that you'll be like God. And, and he just has a way of distorting things to exaggerate, to make the pleasures of sin and disobedience seem much greater than what God has said so So much so that we can't even see the consequences. And as as we uh, begin to desire, as we do, uh, rather the enemy just distorts what is true, leading us all the way to the end where we are just destroyed. Great of ours. Uh, So, this is his end game. 1 Peter 5, Peter warns us, because this is what he's been doing over and over. He warns us, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This has been his tactics. This is what his aim. He is seeking someone who has isolated themselves from the presence of God. Somebody who is not uh, in, the, uh, in the presence of God's people. He's looking for someone to devour. Jesus warns about this in John 10.10. 10. He says, the thief, speaking of the enemy of Satan, the thief comes only, this is his one goal, only to steal and kill and strike. Christ says, I have come to give life, that they may have life and have it abundantly. And you know what? This destruction, this devour, this is exactly what happens here in Genesis 3 and verses 6 and 7. The woman sees the tree is good. She delights in it. The tree was to be desired, and she takes of its fruit. And the fallout is tragic. Devastation has unleashed upon their soul and every human born since then. The fallout, like I said, is so tragic. And here's the, the tragic thing, right? She's being promised that they would be like God. But don't miss how disordered and how bizarre this promise is. Eve wanted to be like God when she already was. Remember, they are created. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. He created them. How much more like God could we be? yet to the destruction of Adam and Eve he promises her something that she already had and did not believe it. she was persuaded by the lie and then the then then the fallout everything it just gets more tragic and tragic from here on verse 7 like shame poisons them their eyes are open, they, they see their nakedness, and so now they have to just like go and take these fig leaves and sew them together to cover up their shame. And then, then, then God's presence scares them in verses 8 through 10. This is the first time like God's presence scared them. No, they had unhindered access. They walked with God without fear, without shame, without any, without any sort of, uh, of uh, hindrance to the relationship, and now they're hiding. This might be the greatest tragedy of it all, and it? it's been on display ever since. It's at work, even in our own life, because this is exactly what the enemy wants. He wants us to hide. He wants us to isolate ourselves from the presence of God. For where are we safe, church? Where do we find our refuge? Where do we find the truth? Where are we, uh, 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 where are we blessed? In the presence of God. When we are with him, when we when he is amongst us, when we are living life on mission, when we are worshiping him, when we are walking with him, and now his presence becomes something that they are afraid of. See, we only flee God when we are in sin. Some of you this morning, maybe you need to just hear this come back to the Lord even in the midst of this. This is exactly what God does. He he actually comes to them. He's the one that calls them out. Did you notice that? He's not like playing this game. The Lord God called the man. He's like, hey, where are you? He's not playing Marco Polo. He's not playing hide and seek. He knows exactly where they are, just like he knows exactly where you are. And yet in mercy, he comes to them. He asks these questions, and he begins to ask those heart-penetrating questions that only God can do. And as he does, and they're confronted with their sin, uh, Adam and Eve repent and... Back to Christ, don't they? No, instead of playing hide and seek, now the blame game begins. This is the first inning of the blame game that's been ongoing, multiple innings for the rest of human history. And not only this, like, like God, He 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 approaches, He confronts Adam first, which is so interesting here. Because Adam's actually in this. Adam's not like out to lunch or something while all this is happening. We don't get it here in our English translation, but as the serpent is talking to Eve and this whole thing, the yous are plural. Bible writers weren't Texans because we got a word for that, y'all, right? Like there's a plural form of you. But Adam is there and he is the one who's abdicated his leadership. He is the one who should be saying, no, we will not do this. But instead, as God confronts him, notice the audacity of verse 12, and this is what sin makes us do. He plays the blame game. The woman whom you gave me, God, she made me do it. Not only does he blame his wife, he blames God. Adam abdicates, abdicates his leadership through it all. He passes it to Eve, and the Lord says, well, what, did you, what is this you've done? And here's the first time, you know, that was ever, the devil made me do it. And that victim mentality that plagues us all is on display right here. This is its source. Instead of of owning it, instead of embracing it, instead of repenting of it, they're persuaded to believe it all and they pass the blame uh, on to the next person. And so what's, what's our callness, as we understand the tactics of, of the enemy, as we understand the persuasiveness of our enemy in sin, the call, just like First Peter calls us to, First Peter five verse eight, is to be discerning. To understand and identify the enemy's tactics, to understand and identify our, our sinful symptoms, these, these things of shame and fleeing and blaming others, the results of sin. Sin that has ruined everything, sin that has ruined our, our relationship with the Lord, our sin that has ruined our relationships with one another, we must understand, identify, and be discerning about what's going on in our hearts and in the world and uh, especially amongst others. You see, the, the, the text goes on. God now is going to uh, uh, begin uh, uh, confronting each party in this, uh, in this story here. And, this, and the story continues with this point, that sin is pervasive. Sin is pervasive, meaning that everybody has been affected. From God's creation to the power behind the serpent to the woman and to the man. And in this, the Lord, He begins to uh, 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 confront. He begins to, uh, uh, to, to speak to each party involved. Begins with the serpent there in verse 14. He says, you're going to go on your belly. This crawling is that perpetual re- uh, symbol of defeat. You will eat my dust, God says. Every time we see a snake, it is a reminder of the power of God, the pervasiveness of sin, and what happens when we give into it. Here it is on it. It makes me wonder here. Like, you know, he says, You go on your on your belly, cursed are you above all livestock above all beasts of the field. It makes me like wonder. And I was having a conversation with somebody at Man Camp, I don't remember who it was now, but uh, about this very thing. It's like, what were snakes like before this? Before God, were they like long and have arms like, you know, big old centipedes or whatever? Were they like just these enormous versions of those little, you know, uh, centipede things we have here in Texas, the spawn of Satan, whatever those things are called that are like red and have like the fluorescent yellow things? You know what I'm talking about? All live in the country know what I'm talking about. Were they like some big version of that and now God removes their legs? I don't know, but it has affected creation. From the serpent here, so even in verse 15, he confronts there to the power behind the serpent. Here he addresses the, 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 the adversary to Satan here. He engages in a long-term battle here. He will put enmity between him and the woman, between the offspring of each. In a long-term battle with a decisive victory at the cross that will be completed one day. Even as John read from us, uh, for us this morning in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 and 22, there is coming a day when uh, Christ will come and, and all this will be over. The battle against sin will be finally complete. A day yet to come where the deceiver will finally and forever be silenced and punished. The lake of fire. But that battle has been waging ever since. And waging in the in the heavenly realms in this way. See, sin is pervasive and has affected everyone, even women and men. Look at the, the, what he tells the, the women here. It's so pervasive. Now there's pain in childbearing. All our moms in here know exactly what that is about. There'll be difficulty in marriage and in the uh, in the marriage relationship, where women's desires are now disordered in a desire to control. Desire to rule over the husband. Now hear the game. The battle of the sexes is forever waged. For she will want to lead and overthrow the functional leadership of her husband in marriage. And men will forever be apathetic and passive and have to work. Look at, the, look at what he says to the man, to Adam in 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Cursed is the ground. Cursed is his life. Pain he will eat of it, thorns and thistles. See, when God's men um, fail to lead and to love, it's not just their life that is affected, it's everybody around them. Creation, women, children, every part of God's creation is affected. It is so pervasive. To the point where he will, he will just return. He now is, uh, he is reminded of his mortality. He will return to dust. This, this is like hard stuff to take in, isn't it? Like I thought we were talking about how great God is. Well, if we want to see how great God is, we also have to see how tragic and how broken our own life, our own relationships in this world really is. See, everything has been affected by this. We live in a broken world. This is what is normal. y'all. And, and so uh, the, an the enemy's so good about this. Things are broken. And so he begins to persuade us. He begins to uh, lead us down this way. He begins to feed us lie after lie after lie after lie. And there's no place uh, uh, like our marriages that really experience these type of lies. That, that, where, where this is totally on display. How sin has ruined everything, and not only in in the world, and not only in our uh, in in the reminders of the thorns and thistles that uh, you know that just overtake our yard and overtake our flower beds. It is really in the context of marriage, I think, that we see this. If you're not married, here are things to to prepare for. If you are married, here's just I think as I as I you know council people as a shepherd uh, you here are just kind of common lies that I think marriages believe under the pervasiveness of sin marriages are tempted to believe in a variety of ways that uh, that our love for one another is based on what we do for one another it's a desire for for performance. That, oh, my husband only loves me because I cook meals or I have his children. Or she only loves me because I I, I pay all the bills or whatever it might be. There's this performance mentality, a uh, works-driven ideology that is brought into our marriages and also our faith. We begin to believe these lies that our marriage is about our happiness. That my spouse, my husband, or my wife is here to make me happy. As Paul Tripp uh, so uh, uh, poignantly points out that oftentimes where this goes wrong is because we view our spouse as either the, an obstacle to our happiness, the one preventing us from it, or an object of our happiness. The reality is, is God brings these, uh, a man and a woman together in marriage to make us holy, to sanctify us, to sharpen one another, to make us more like Christ. See, on our own where uh, it was not good, but brought together a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. This was very good. There's a third lie, this isn't an exhaustive list. There's a multitude of things I think that the enemy has done to make us, our relationships and our marriages go in the ditch. But here's the final one. It's the lie that the, our spouse will never change. This is just who they are. They, they'll, 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 they'll never do X. They'll never love me this way. They'll just never, this is just who they are. Redemption, let me just say, like, if you're both in Christ, if you both are loving and pursuing the Lord, then this is never true. Under Christ, transformation is always possible. Don't give in to the idea uh, uh, and, and give in to despair that our spouse can't change in Christ. They may have a history. I'm not trying to d- diminish that. They may have, like, a decades long history of, of doing something or thinking something. But if my heart, through the loving patience of my wife, can begin to tolerate even country music, there's hope in your marriage as well. There's hope. There's always hope. They can change. And this is, you know, and this gets disordered here because our desire to control, to be the ones to make or to force them to change or to believe or to do whatever we want them to do. So we. Make allowances. What are we to do in all this? We know, we understand like our spouse, our coworkers, everybody has been affected by sin. How do we respond in this? In the strife that just characterizes life here and now. How do we respond? We respond with compassion. We respond with pity, with grace, with patience, with help, knowing that we are in this together, especially in our marriages. like We are just fellow pilgrims. We are are on this journey together. They, too, have been affected by sin, and now I am am a means to help them grow in this. God is so good. Even knowing all this, he's given us his word. He's given us his people while we live in this sin-ruined world. And in the same way here, God comes near and calls to us even in the midst of our struggle with sin even now. Because see, here, we've painted a pretty tragic picture, haven't we? Genesis 3 is really tragic and, and, uh, and is and is reality about what life is like and why things are broken the way that uh, we see them and are living it out now. But even in the midst of this, the grace and wisdom and kindness of God is on display. Because here's, the, here's, here's our next point. God's grace is greater. Why can we believe these things? Why can we show compassion? Why can we show help and pity and patience? Because God's grace is greater than even the ruinous nature of our earth. Some of you who know this uh, passage, you're familiar with it. You probably are screaming inside when I skipped over part of verse 15, huh? Like, wait, what about that? You, you just skipped right over verse 15. See, look at what it says here in verse 15. As God is waging war, uh, uh, this long-term battle with the power behind the serpent. And he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Here he gives the first gospel promise where he, the coming one, the power behind the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now as doubt has been cast, suspicion has been cast, God makes this promise. A promise that we are called to, to believe and to give hope, gives hope to humanity ever since. It is referring to an event in the distant future for them. And one we look back on at the cross where God promises a crushing death blow to the enemy's head. Even though Satan would bruise his heel. I think is a deadly wound in itself. See, through Christ's death, Satan would be conquered and we would be saved. God's grace is greater, y'all. Even in the midst of all this, even in, the, even in, the, in, in sin ruining and corrupting all of God's good creation, His death blow would be greater than anything the enemy could do. And so He promises His grace a grace that we embrace, a grace that saves us, a grace that also gives hope and help even for the present. And so while this, he's promising something in the future, look at what he does even in verse 20, 21. See, his grace is greater than all. He provides for them in the immediate. He's saying there will be a decisive victory that will come, and yet even in the middle of it all right now, After he confronts them, then they go back to what they were called to do. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So, note this, church, despite sin's ruining effect, Adam and Eve's identity does not change. They're not defined by their sin, but by their purpose from the Lord. What God had created them to do. What God had spoken over them. See, she's not defined. Eve is not defined by her sin. She's chosen. She's beloved. She's a recipient of the grace of God as the mother of the living. And ladies, you need to hear this today. You're not defined by your sin. You're not defined by what you've done in your past. If you're in Christ today, the, the conversation that you wish you could take back, the things that you wish that you'd done that, that, that have had some pretty painful consequences, you're not defined by that. The Lord doesn't uh, define Eve by it. He doesn't cast her aside. He doesn't, though, though the consequences are, are, are real and though the pain is, is real in all of this, see, he, she is still given a name here. And Adam, in the same way, is responsibility His identity to name all of God's creation doesn't go away. God still calls him to name Eve. Ben, you need to hear this today. You're not defined by past failures, past mistakes. If You're in Christ today. Your identity as God's man is to lead and love those around you, to live life on mission, to be about discipleship. Even if you have a history of decades of abdicating that, of failing to do that, of being harsh with it. Today is a new day in Christ. You can get after it today, repent, make the uh, amends, do what you need to do, own it, take responsibility, don't blame anyone else for it. And be about the work, be about the purpose that God has given you as God's man to live and lead and love other people for God's glory. Today is a new day for that. Let October 17th be a change in what you live for. You can still do it. Now, there may be some consequences. I'm not saying that it won't be hard. As a matter of fact, it's going to be very hard. But God's grace is greater than even your sin. God's grace is greater. Let's just believe that. See, and, and look at what happens next. Like the Lord God, he makes all of that happen. The way we, reason we can even say that is because God provides a substitute Just like I've said, in Christ we can do this. In Christ, then verse 21, there's some foreshadowing to that. Because look what the Lord God does. He actually takes, uh, he makes the skins uh, that clothes Adam and Eve. Where they tried to cover their shame and they just grabbed some leaves and, you know, sewed them together and covered themselves. And now God taking an animal, the death that Adam and Eve deserved to die for their sin was placed on an animal. Who gave their life. Their skin now covers their shame. This would happen multiple times as our Old Testament goes on. As animals are slain as the substitute for their sin. But we know that Christ would come. He would die to cover our sin and shame. And to clothe us with his righteousness. He would die in our place. God's grace is greater. This is why we can live today, even when the consequences are painful. See, that's how the text ends here. There's a high note here of God's grace that is greater. But even in the midst of it, the text ends in the last few verses here about the painful consequences and the reality of it. Like this isn't just like we're back to idyllic world. No, now there's the reality of, 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 the, of the sin that has ruined everything. We still feel the pain, the pain of, of knowing information we weren't meant to carry. Like look at, look at verse 22, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And this is such an interesting thing here because I think how this is played out, this knowing of good and evil. See, led by the Spirit now is in God's grace, it leads us to be discerning. But corrupted by sin, within us there is this desire to be omniscient. The desire to know uh, things, and it leads us into those sins that we hate, like gossip and haughtiness, that we think we're right, or that because we know something about somebody else, it makes us better than them. It leads us into the things of, of knowing us too much information that we just aren't meant to carry. I think this is one of the destructive things of media in our day, particularly social media, is we are inundated with information that our soul just cannot bear. Tragedy and things. We know things about people on the other side of the world that should make us uh, grieve because of sin that's involved in it. Or in another city or whatever. And yet we can't, we, like, we're naturally meant to respond to it and we can't do anything about it. And so we have to harden our heart or suppress the information that we know about things. It leaves us calloused in such a way that we know so much about what we can't do anything about, and we know so little or next to nothing about the people that we can at least do something, if not everything, about. We know all kinds of things happening in another state and other countries, and yet we don't know the people who live across the street from us or next door to us or share an office space with us or are sitting next to us in this room. Desire to be omniscient is is, is 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 painful. We have to take it back, and God is so kind to actually like boot them out of the Garden of Eden like this. See, there's also the pain of desiring to live forever. See, they get kicked out lest they eat of the tree of life. Did you see that? And then they live forever. It's for their protection that He boots them out. Otherwise, now they would be sin corrupted and immortal. That's no bueno. That's no bueno, and so it is God's protection actually to kick them out so that they would have to live this life, and then they would one day die. See, we have to die. The only escape from this sin-ruined world is when Christ calls us home. When Christ calls us home and we shed these bodies that have been corrupted by sin and we receive our glorified bodies uh, that, are, uh, that have been delivered from all of this mess. And yet our disordered world and all this, we want to live forever, don't we? I want to live forever. We eat diets to make us, to elongate our life. We, 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 we take medicines, we exercise all these things to elongate our life. And yet we who are believers, God's great hope in this is that sin has been defeated, death has been defeated, and we will live again. See, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And we need not fear that. It is actually God's great mercy to us to call us home, even in the midst of this. And yet we know the consequences, the pain of the work and the toil that is required uh, from uh, uh, us in our day-to-day lives. Every day is a reminder that sin has separated us from God. And every day is a reminder of the grace of God towards us as we have the hope of Christ. And yet we work, understanding it is a, the painful consequence of the separation which sin uh, uh, required. And yet Christ did the greatest work, living the perfect life that we couldn't live, and dying the death, the only innocent one to ever live, dying as our substitute that we might live forever. This is why we take communion. Communion is just that reminder of it. I point to this, the elements here. This is is what we remember as we think to the cross of what our sin required, the payment, the cost of life. We remember the great hope that uh, uh, that we have in Christ, that it wasn't in an animal, animals that needed to be sacrificed again and again and again, that in Christ we have the once-for-all sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sin. That in Him, every time we take it, we are proclaiming His death. Yes, sin ruined everything, but God is greater and has reconciled us back to himself through Jesus Christ. This is his grace. This is his greatness, even in the midst of all the consequences in the life that we live. We look to Christ's redemption. So Let's pray and we'll take it, but let's pray and let these things sink in as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's table. God in heaven, here we are. Here we are under the heaviness of uh, of this, uh, the truth, the heaviness of sin, the reality of the brokenness of our world, and the weightiness of your great mercy and grace towards us. That even in even in sin, even in the even in this tragedy, even in the fall. you would set in motion the greatest rescue plan of all where you would be glorified and we might be saved. And so as we're before you now, God, we just come, we bring our sin to you, we confess it to you, looking for your forgiveness even now. did what was required that Jesus you hung on that cross as both king